Uh, if we've got my life in posting my tomorrow. Posting. Yeah, uh... okay, so we'll do this as a free one. All right. Yeah. Hello, and welcome to this bonus episode of 10,000 Posts, the show about how everything is posting. My name is Hussein. My name is Phoebe. Yeah, we're, we're going to be talking about another documentary. I've uh, been kind of like going through some of the archives. I thought this documentary was interesting. I'd seen it when it came out in around about 2009. Um, and I found when I first time I watched it, I found it like very creepy and weird and sort of like it was very much something that I had got, I had heard from, from friends of mine who recommended it. Um, it's just sort of being this kind of like weird documentary about what they said was a cult. Watching it again, I have some different-ish opinions. I think it's interesting just to think about it in the context of like surveillance and kind of platform surveillance, stuff that we talk about on the show all the time. Uh, it is called We Live in Public. It came out in 2009. Uh, more details on that in a second. But Phoebe, what were your thoughts on uh, We Live in Public? Well, first of all, I found it really interesting. Um, I've never seen it before. I've never heard of it. Um, on doing a little bit of reading around, I found out that I hadn't realized it uh, is by a very famous uh, documentarian, this uh, documentarian called uh, Ondi Timina, who also, I don't know if, you have, if you've ever seen Dig, which is another one of her, another one of her pieces. No, I haven't. I've heard um, about it's, it. It's really, really good. good. It's... um. It's a documentary about the Dandy Warhols and the Brian Jonestown massacre and about the uh, fascinating love-hate relationship between the two frontmen over like a kind of over like a kind of period of years. It's like it's a really, really good music documentary if you like that sort of thing. The thing that I mm. found uh, the thing that I found sort of most interesting watching um, uh, watching We Live in Public was that um watching something that is made in 2009 now is quite a surreal experience if you didn't see it at the time because in terms of the aesthetics of documentary which are mm. which 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 change they they are like as affected by their by their context as any other kind of as any other kind of text really so it is really, really strange, particularly in view of the fact that the last documentary that we watched was the Hillsong documentary, which is very recent, which mm. is made very much for the contemporary viewer. So it's so it's a series of kind of short vignettes. There's no there's no pausing on any one person um, or any one interview for too long. It's kind of uh, screenshotable, memifiable sound bites going ding, 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 kind of jumping around so that you can sort of take it in a little bit while you're also on the phone. This is like your secondary mm. screen. This is like your kind of, this is your kind of ambient screen. But mm. this, this film, which is so interesting because it is so about, uh, about predicting a mode of living and a mode of being and a mode of relating to the world around you. And it utterly fails to predict this one. Mm. So there's, so there's a lot of stuff that not just it, that it get that it gets right in its analysis, but that it describes somebody in the early nineties getting like getting right. Like it's really, really startling. Um, some of the stuff that, that some of the stuff they get into in terms of, in terms of how much foresight there was there, like, you know, for, for, for better or for worse. But the thing that the makers of this documentary didn't put it together with was, was, was with, oh, okay, well, with increased surveillance and increased, uh, increased loneliness and increased atomization and the development of, te uh, development of technology, uh, this guy is going to be proved right about, about the way that, people are going to be living in public but the thing that they didn't guess was and everyone is going to have their main screen with them like a little like a comfort mm. object like a toy all the time and that's what you're not going to be able to tear their attention away from because mm. this required actually 
looking at it and watching it and the interview sections were quite long the uh the the aesthetics and the imagery were quite coolly observational there was sort of there wasn't any kind of there wasn't any kind of sort of made for social media design about it yeah which i just thought was which i just thought was was interesting and yet again the thing that it diagnoses as being as being this kind of social sort of symptom of kind of social decay is reality tv so like again when we were talking about brooker and black mirror mm. that his big thing was the the big the big bad destructive force is going to be reality tv Mm. and it's it's sort of it's sort of right and sort of wrong at the same time as well which i just think is i just think is quite interesting and another thing that doesn't predict it predicts um it predicts more surveillance by governments it predicts more surveillance and data gathering by Mm. business it even predicts people willingly placing themselves under surveillance by putting that by putting their lives online but what it doesn't predict again interesting is it doesn't predict the impulse to uh at the social and community level mutually survey each other that's not something which kind of which sort of seems to occur to to anybody who's either involved in involved in the making of the documentary or who is the subject of the documentary like the idea of people of people understanding their lives mm. as a kind of center of uh of society and of the community and therefore anybody who else they who comes into their orbit or their ambit is also a kind of legitimate secondary character and therefore it is fine to survey and distribute them as well because that's sort of part of it that's part of the space that you're inhabiting and even as the the subject of the documentary gets you know he starts to kind of lose his grip a little bit very kind of obviously after attempting to attempting to live live his life online Mm. he doesn't he doesn't predict that he doesn't predict the you know the covertly filming people on public in public and inviting inviting harassment not the same as street art or by the way or street photography it's it's not the same thing we can pretend it's the same thing but it's not it's not the same thing at all making content out of unwilling subjects in order to in order to kind of direct ridicule or or harassment against them is simply not the same as as a street art and i would very much like it not to be uh, not to be conflated with it i think so, so, so speaking of like artists and stuff so let's you know I'll, I'll give like a brief synopsis of people who either haven't seen it or have seen it but don't really remember it uh like they used to so the we live in public it was directed by ondi uh timona that's how you pronounce her name i would say timona but i've never heard it said out loud ondi timona uh and uh it sort of centers around this in this very early dot-com pioneer called josh harris Josh Harris uh, founded, among other things, a uh, a streaming content service called Sudo.com. Um, and Sudo.com was one of those types of, from what I understand, because I, I didn't have any like direct familiarity with this when I was younger. So this is all just coming from a documentary. But the impression that I get is that it is this kind of like web, like TV, not TV, but like a kind of online entertainment network. It has like various kind of shows there are pranks human experiments uh they call them um the idea was sort of like it was kind of this crazy ish uh i don't know there's like a, a, a studio i guess um there's a line in there where it's just like yeah like people who came into suit like came in there were allowed to basically like do and create whatever they want so they created a lot of this like weird content that was streamed on the internet um for the first time um he sells this for i can't remember exactly how much he sells it for but he sells it for enough money that he can basically do whatever he wants Mm. um and with that 
he but he's always been fascinated by the idea of living online and all that not all living in public uh he's very intrigued in uh people kind of watching other people on the internet so then he uh creates what he calls as an art project which is called quiet we live in public um it is described as quote an orwellian big brother concept with a quote neo-fascistic element um, at least according to the wiki page anyway, uh, which was developed in the 90s. And it placed 100 volunteers in this three-story loft in Broadway in New York City. Um, and, there, and in this place, and we'll describe, the, we'll describe what this looks like in a second, because like it does really look quite grim and dystopic. There were 110 surveillance cameras put around this building, which captured every move and every resident had their own channel in which they could watch each other. Um, when it launched, Harris proclaimed that, quote, everything is free except your image that we own. Um, so it was like cre- created as this art project that was then forced to shut down uh, on Ju- January the 1st, 2000 by the New York Police Department uh, upon them hearing reports that like there is kind of a cult in this area. Um, so that's like the first iteration of We Live in Public, although the second half of the film then goes into Harris's continued fascination of surveillance and the transition from this um, this kind of art project that he called it into um, kind of doing the same thing, but in the context of a relationship. Mm. Um, so he then puts it in his house or in his apartment where like people watch him and his girlfriend and his then girlfriend uh, around the clock, uh, including some pretty like awful and quite harrowing moments in their relationship. Um, and it kind of ends with, uh, you know, there, there's, there's a sort of ending which kind of like looks at like, you know, the end of the dot-com bubble and, but also just this broader element of like, well, the impacts of this project kind of continue uh, today in the sense of like, you know, and it kind of these overtures to like social media platforms. And I think obviously looking at that now, looking at it now, it's like where we, have a much deeper understanding of surveillance, but also, as you kind of alluded to, that type of around the clock being filmed, both in like sort of a direct sense, but in an indirect sense, now is so like ubiquitous that this feels kind of detached from all. That. I I don't know. Mm. Like um, I, I've been trying to like because obviously one of the reasons why I thought this would be a good idea for a film to watch is because you know we have talked about Twitch streamers and we've obviously talked about like surveillance culture on platforms like twitter and facebook and stuff but really just this broader idea that like you know not only are people living in public whether they want to or not i think one of the points that you brought up which is really really interesting is just about the fact that like now people live in public regardless of whether they want to and in Mm. the experiment one of the key elements is that people who are doing this project are volunteering to or at least like on the surface or like initially they are sort of wanting to as part of the experiment or they say they want to um, I, I, I'm sort of, I'm not sure what my opinion is on like whether one can, whether you can sort of really consent to something like that, but mm. you know, it, it is at least not sort of taken as granted that like, well, people live like this anyway, and therefore you can treat them in, in any way you want and kind of incorporate them into your content any way you want. This is also a time where like, no one's really thinking about this as content, at least like not in that sort of like very yeah. formal setting. Mm. Prior to the present definition of content. Were there any moments of the film that Many sort of like stuck out to you as one of the things that I sort of wanted to also clarify before we before we move on about my my point about the difference between between surveying, recording, distributing without um without the kind of consent of the subject and how that differs from street photography. Just to be very clear, I wouldn't I would not suggest making that against the law. And the reason I wouldn't suggest making that against the law is that this would definitely, definitely end up with it becoming illegal for you to film police officers and so on. And right. that's not. And I don't. I don't know how you could write a law which uh, made it clear that you are not allowed to, um, that you're not allowed to kind of like film someone covertly on the tube because you think they're, because you think they're kind of you know they, they look weird or because you just don't like the look of them or whatever. I don't know how that wouldn't be how that wouldn't be collapsed into you are also not allowed to film police officers, um, which I think is obviously a very important civic right and so on and so forth. But I would quite like there to be a significant uh, kind of cultural self-policing about it, I suppose. I would like it to be kind of deemed to be a, a thoroughly antisocial and obnoxious thing to do. 
and for people who do it to you know be be treated as if they are doing something obnoxious and antisocial. Something that mm. something that uh, jumped out for me um, from from the, from the doc, and I thought this was quite interesting, was that one of one of this guy, one of this guy, Josh Harris's original kind of forays into kind of making into kind of making use of uh, of this at the time pretty new technology. Um, the idea of like of uh, of networking going outside sort of schools and schools um, offices, large institutions, so on and so forth. The idea of there being a sort of network capability in people's homes is is in the nineties. This this is this is new. This is kind of real futuristic stuff. But that his first uh, that his first kind of foray into into making making art sort of for the network is this is this clown character called lovey how did oh, you feel yeah. about how did you feel about the lovey sections uh they i completely forgot about them um yeah that was kind of weird i didn't expect i i don't know if i have any opinions about clowns but um yeah no i just found it very weird uh i don't know kind of what it sort of i don't know whether there was like a big clown thing going on back in the night i mean there was wasn't was was there a clown thing going on in the 90s this is the thing i like honestly because i was in 1993 i was like i was way too young to know about the to know about whether or not there was a sort of significant clown thing but i don't know because like the first it came out in the 80s, I think. Mm. But I'm just trying to think of like how much like kind of cultural cultural seepage there was. I don't think there was I don't think there was that much. It's like it's less that um that is a clown character, I think, and more um that there seems to be something very peculiar in this person's sort of personal psychology in that he wants to be a lot more peculiar than he actually seems to be. So I was I was looking this up and according to a newspaper article, um, I don't know, I completely forgot whether it was in the documentary, but apparently he used to go around his office at pseudo.com dressed as lovey and he would just say like provocative shit to like try and trigger mm. people, I guess. Um, and then yeah. at one point, According to this, uh, Lovey spent one night in Manhattan trying to coordinate a free couple orgy for the cameras, which I think is like an interesting thing in of itself. So, like, is this kind of like a character that he's created? Is it, you know, is it sort of related to, you know, is it like an online persona that's sort of coming into real life? And is this sort of him trying to kind of bridge the two, like the online world and the real world together? And so Lovey is almost like an avatar. Mm. or because that to me it's what strikes me to me is like this is less about the clown but more about the idea that like you adopt a particular character and persona on the internet and i imagine at the time the idea that like your online self can be a sort of elevation of your real self or an alternative of your real self is kind of you know a a type of thinking that you only really would have if you're an internet person mm. it feels like less kind of like revolutionary now not least because i feel like to a degree that's kind of everyone but also the idea of like you know creating an alternative version of yourself is sort of impossible because of the type of surveillance technology and infrastructure that is now kind of like present on the internet today mm. i wonder whether like lovey is kind of his kind of online like like a sort of avatar that he's trying to use to you know present himself in the online and the sort of offline world. Yeah, no, no, I do see, I do see what you mean. It's just that I'm just, I'm, I'm struggling to, uh, to kind of fit it in with the, uh, with the other things that were sort of being, that we're being kind of told about him because uh, this, um, this character, um, this kind of, this sort of clown character is, Supposed to be supposed to be based on a character from um, from Gilligan's Island, which I don't know if you're I don't know if you're familiar no. with it. 
Uh, Gilligan's Island is a um, was a 1960s American sitcom. It's like one of those like like I suppose you probably think of them as like a kind of classic sitcom, like kind of, like the Munsters, like the old Adams Family, which is about I think it's about castaways on an on an island. I think that's what Gilligan's Island is about. Yeah. So this is so this is obviously kind of very kind of embedded in um in this kind of in in kind of american cultural history but what i'm what i'm struggling to kind of to kind of make the connection with is mm. whether or not he sees himself as somebody who is kind of primarily taxed with making art and whether this is supposed to be a a kind of modernist performance mm. or whether he is a kind of very early version of what we think of as like the tech guy who would in the main um i mean as far as we know anyway be kind of quite be hostile to this kind of deliberately kind of modernist and like kind of deliberately um deliberately kind of repulsive approach yeah. to kind of to making art and to and to performing art but he doesn't actually seem to be that interested in the idea of uh persona and authenticity and who is your who is your real self who is your who is your false self who like is is the is his lovey character really formally any different from um the character that you see on um mm. on we live in on the we live in public project it's just that you feel like it is because it's so much so much more obviously artificial and so much more obviously grotesque and grotesque and kind of horrifying and because it is quite it is horrifying his because he's he's got he's got his sort of weird face paint on he says lovey on his head he kind of makes kind of uh, so he's doing like a weird impression that he at one point says is an impression of his mother. So some, so some, you know, some kind of <laughs> stuff going on there mm. on the on the on the sort of site on the sort of psychological level. But I'm just I'm interested that they don't that they I'm interested that the makers of the documentary don't seem terribly interested in it, and they seem to and they seem to be sort of suggesting that well, this is how he drew attention to himself. By dressing up as a clown and dicking around the office, and so the, his next phase in drawing attention to himself was was kind of making himself into into this kind of uh, simultaneously real and simultaneously constructed figure, which is again he's not apparently massively interested in trying to put forward an idea of technology as being kind of beneficial to humanity not really mm. it's more just about this is it's more that he's sort of developed a kind of philosophical paradox which is this is where this is where surveillance is going this is the logical endpoint so i'm going to bring that endpoint forward i'm going to take control of that endpoint and deliberately place myself in front of a camera i'm taking control of that idea and mm. everything about so like so like pseudo.com his um his kind of online his like kind of online network which is so like trash bat from nathan barley if you remember the mm. if you remember the conversation we had about i do remember that, about yeah. that for the bonus episode with clive a few got a few months ago now it's just it's very hard to kind of get a grasp on what he was putting over that his point was and what the filmmakers think his point was. And this is what I think I mean a little bit about the, the stylistic tone and the kind of the coolly observational tone. It, and it cannot be the case that it has no editorializing to it because it does. Everything mm. has an editorial standpoint, even if you're aware of it or not. But it's being presented like, well, they have just filmed. They have just asked questions like the questions aren't questions that they've chosen themselves. They've just presented this material and then the viewer is free to interpret 
it however they like and we are not going to kind of editorialize and that's also and that's you know that's that in itself is an artifice that in itself is a is a fiction because all documentaries are editorialized but it's much less heavily this is what we want you to think this is how this is how we're building the narrative this is how we're building the story and i don't know if this is deliberate or not and in fact i don't see how it can be oh no maybe it is if it's 2009 so they're very very familiar with the uh with the television with with reality tv and this is like this is after big brother started and other and other kind of big reality tv properties there's something oddly similar to reality tv about it which is there is this pretense like well no 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 no. there's no editorializing we're not trying to get you to see this material in a certain way we're just documenting we're wildlife photographers we're just putting cameras here and then we are presenting the material and then you can do what you like with them but of course that's not true because production teams want you to think think certain things of certain reality tv characters and on something like on something like love island you couldn't watch a 24 hour like vlog like unedited vlog it would be nightmarish and people who work on it say that it's say that it's sort of fairly kind of nightmarish to to watch it trying to kind of pick out narratives trying to work out what parts of people's characters they want to they want to kind of bring forward what parts they want to kind of subtly leave out uh i remember when when big brother was on tv before it moved to channel Mm. five when it was still on channel four they there was a there was the option to watch big brother live that was on in like the Mm. middle of the night so if you had like if you had really bad insomnia as i did at the time I like how like literally like every single kind of like, what is your memory of this piece of media? It always starts with, yeah, so when I had really bad insomnia, so just assume that if I'm familiar with um, particularly kind of media trend, it's because I couldn't sleep at the time. And you could just watch them sleeping and like getting up mm. and wandering around and having chats in their pajamas. And it was so incredibly boring. Like, it was more boring than, like, just, like, looking at a wall, watching these other people. But you also couldn't... There was also something kind of oddly tickling to the brain Mm. about it. Like, you... If you turned on Big Brother Live, that's it. You were sitting there for three hours. And so whatever it was, whatever, whatever that kind of... That tickle, that kind of impulse was, which the the forerunners and the um and the people behind the big social media platforms have worked have worked out how to turn into a kind of much more insistent tickle in the mm. interve- in the intervening years so whatever that was is obviously something which he took an interest in and it's obviously something which the filmmakers have taken an interest in but it's quite interesting never to say that explicitly and i think if this documentary had been made now they would say this explicitly because the editorializing would be so much more visible and so much more kind of accessible to to the viewer mm. i mean i don't know what you think about that it's just I'm just unspooling no, 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 I feel because there's like a lot to chew in there. And I was like, really, well, one question I wanted to ask, because uh, as someone who does not really watch a lot of reality TV, but has, I mean, bearing in mind, like the ones, the stuff I have watched, both of the show and in general, um, one of the things you sort of notice with like your Love Islands and stuff is that it's rare to sort of, you know, it's not, it's not a show anymore. It's not, it's not a show where you kind of put these people on an island and sort of let them get on with it. And that was the impression I got with like the early Big Brothers when it was mm. kind of a big deal. But it was yeah. like, okay, you're, you know, and that's so, you know, because I remember those times when I didn't sleep um, for like either insomniac reasons or like um, my, my parents like had a store and we used to open up quite early in the morning. So like in between the time that we were waiting to get everyone ready, like the only thing that would sort of be uh, playing would be like Big Brother. So, you, you know, my mum and, you know, would watch uh you know just these and i used to kind of think it's so weird that you're just watching these people sleeping right yeah. and they're just doing that like there's nothing else um but for some reason that was so fascinating 
Uh, and I don't know if it was like fast, like the idea of just like watching someone sleep was fascinating or whether you were like searching for something, but it was just the idea, but no, you're just going to put these people in this place and just like naturally see what happens, mm. which is kind of like what you sort of see in this. I don't think it's like, you know, he's not sort of letting people happen, let things happen because obviously like the presence of technology, the presence of like everyone having a screen and stuff like it is there, like the voyeuristic component. And I thought as a kind of concept, looking back on this, it's, this is interesting in the sense that like, I do wonder what the, eff- I, I do wonder what the effect was of sort of putting people in this place where like people can watch them, but they're also sort of watching each other mm. and but they're watching multiple screens on this one screen. Right. So like, I've got this still at the moment of one of the one of the participants and it goes to uh, the screen that they're watching. And on this, it's, you know, it's like this, you know, there are like various cameras, you know, one camera is showing this couple, presumably who have just had sex or are just about to have sex. Um, A couple of screens of people sleeping, one of like a screen of people talking. Um, And so you're sort of watching multiple cat, like multiple things happen at the same time, Mm. which I think is like, I, I that's 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 really intense. It feel like I watching that section of the documentary of all these people like in the experiment, like during the experiment, that felt really stressful. Mm. I felt really really stressed and kind of grossed by it. But the point I was trying to get to was when you're watching your Love Islands and everything, like they usually kind of give the contestants tasks and stuff to do, or they try to kind of like there are things that are designed to sort of provoke them, or things that are designed to get them to do certain things in order to kind of be particular characters or like set themselves out in that way. And I do wonder whether like the reasoning behind that is partly the result of people becoming so accustomed to being watched that it's no longer like entertaining in and of itself. Like you have to provoke them in a particular way. And Mm. then as a result, like these shows aren't really kind of reality shows in the sense of, you know, in the very direct sense of like you are putting people in a particular unnatural scenario and seeing how they sort of respond to that and like collectively it's an experiment this is more you know you are putting people in a situation where they you know where they know going into it that they are going to be characters and that Mm. their performance as characters determines what their future will be like outside because i didn't i also didn't get that impression either from the people who are like recalling their time in uh we live in public uh you know for them you know they're not you know none of them are sort of thinking about like well what's what's what are like my future material circumstances going to look like after i mm. come out of this this feels almost independent of that oh yeah no no there's no sense at all that this is a kind of job interview uh certainly not in that certainly not in the way that um mm. that something like love island is now what i'm interested in is whether or not this coincides with or predates you know that show the real world uh, yeah, I'm familiar with it, actually. Which yeah. was, uh, which was a kind of precursor, which was a sort of big, big Brother precursor and contemporary, which had a kind of early influencer culture vibe to it. Certainly very, certainly pretty different to the first, um, the first series of Big Brother, which they were still sort of trying to kind of push the, I mean, yeah, who knows? Maybe they, maybe they really meant it. They were still trying mm. to push the line that this was a social mm. experiment and it would be, it was, it was interesting. But even in, um, even in the first big brother series, even though like most of it was just these sort of quite ordinary people sitting around a garden sort of chatting, there mm. were, there were, you know, there were characters. There was, um, your man, nasty Nick, who, um, went into it with <laughs> uh, with a kind of with a kind of action plan. Like, I don't think that this this guy was like legitimately just like a kind of truly kind of like monstrous person. Like he he set himself up with a character. He was a he was the heel in mm. he was the heel in that series. And something that, but with with the real world on the the few, the few occasions that I've seen it. The people on the real world then became famous people in their own right. Even then, that was something which that was something which was just it was assumed that by by offering yourself up to the cameras in this in this way, you were sort of backfaming your own your own celebrity and your own your own fame. You don't have to be you didn't have to be famous for doing anything. You just had to be famous for being willing 
Mm. to submit yourself to the same kind of scrutiny that a famous person would so so it's kind of so it's fame built backwards so it wasn't mm. that you did something or made something and therefore cameras were in your face all the time you agreed to put the cameras in your face and then the fame and then the fame trickled down which is mm. which is quite interesting in terms of like how um how kind of a public figure is constructed but you don't really get much of a sense that that's what Josh Harris was up to Everything that Josh Harris says about it, it sounds much more cult-like, actually. It sounds much more, okay, so how about we get a bunch of people and we move them underground for some reason. (laughs) Mm. And then we film them again for some reason. And you are both, uh, you are both observer and observed all the time. You are both, um, you are both, artifice and maker you are object and you are object and subject and that's Mm. and but it's much more kind of yeah like he was just like this like this charismatic man and just like i could tell that just like whatever he was into like that was the future um and i think that's something that's really important to bring up in this context is the y2k panic yeah because that was that was a real and significant cultural moment that i think has weirdly got quite quite buried um like when whenever you see kind of retrospectives of you know sort of what the kind of what the big what the big cultural moments were of the last of the last kind of 25 years um the the the, the ones that mainly come up are the things which have ever kind of manifest manifest outcome in particularly in sort of questions of kind of geopolitics and foreign policy which i don't think is unreasonable but i think mm. i think it's quite difficult for somebody say in their like in their 20s to visualize mm. how actually vivid the dot com, the um not just the not just the busting of the dot com bubble but the mm. y2k and the millennium bug panic really really was because there was this like oddly even with like technological experts and scientists and people and people of that nature there was a real apocalyptic tone to the way that it was talked about and the way that it was thought about and these kinds of uh just sort of you know, sort of looking looking forward to the destruction, the destruction and the apocalypse and the final and the kind of the final reckoning. Whether you're doing that from a religious perspective or from a technological perspective, or even just from a kind of existential fear perspective, that is the sort of environment that fosters cult building and cult forming. And I think that is, I think that is potentially what they're saying is far more of a significant factor to his desire, not just to uh, get a bunch of people and move them into a kind of sort of weird kind of prepper tunnel, but also, also to leave a kind of, leave a testament of himself and of his life and of the life and the lives of the people around him. And this is again, like, uh, this is why I think this this was such a good choice of documentary to watch because it's it connects with like so many other stuff that we've been talking about. It reminds me a ton of the conversation we had with Ed about the tech people who want to live forever. Yeah, because that's what that is: documenting yourself, you know, leaving leaving behind a recorded testament that says you know this is a here lived here lived a person here was his life this is what this is what it was like to be alive at the end of the end of the 20th century this is a this is a time capsule if we make if we make it through to the other side this is what this is what we can look back on which i Mm. think is which i think is i think it's potentially a certainly a salient part of it as both he saw it and as i think Mm as the filmmakers see it as well. Mm. It's very un-Silicon Valley-ish. I think. Yeah. 
Yeah, which, well, I mean, which I would, is which is yeah, interesting. Fine. Like both in it's like both in his in his kind of preoccupations in the tone of it. Um, there's a so, yeah, there's there's quite a lot of stuff about the about the dot com bubble and about how this you know this 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 dreadful economic crisis, which was blamed on the kind of new wunderkinds of technology, which was kind of the the the, the, the earliest iteration of the Silicon Valley guy as a kind of a figure. But hmm. it's still, like I said, it's still different. He's not interested, as I said, apparently in the world being better. He's not interested in nominating himself as somebody who can make the world better, I don't think. Yeah. He's interested in making an object out of himself which is it's not very silicon valley-ish actually if anything it's more musk like yeah well it wouldn't would it surprise you that josh harris now is very much a sort of like transhumanist guy who has said on record that he thinks that elon musk will save the world doesn't surprise me at all. <laughs> he also thinks that think, he, yeah. he also thinks that he's under um, that he's under surveillance by the FBI because of uh, his involvement in uh, con- in a potentially not real conceptual art piece that apparently took place in the World Trade Center. But obviously, this is not hmm. something which is a so it's a, so it's a kind of again, it's this relationship between um reality and art and artificial reality and mm. and whether or not i suppose it is possible to produce an authentic uh, an authentic experience of any kind and certainly not once it's been recorded and once it's been documented is that is that what rob's experience of authenticity is it is it documenting mm. it? I think is a question that he he certainly seemed to be interested in, but much more interested in that than the idea of well, we obviously were given all of this stuff not because this is just you know this is just the way the cookie crumbles in an unequal society, but because we are automatically the people whose brains are going to be the saving of society. That's not he's not interested in he's interested in the end of society rather than the saving of it. I think. Yeah, and I think this is also where like it's not that different to other dot com guys. And like I think when we did the Lane series, not to not to bring back an anime again, unfortunately, but one of like, you know, so I'll bring it back very, very briefly, but the creator of uh of Lane the Lane series kind of gets onto something similar in the sense that like, you know, that anime was also created in the nineties. It was created during the sort of like dot com hype. Uh and like the sort of idea being that like he's not you know it, it's not about it, it's a the, the premise of it is very much like the technology is kind of here to stay and that we kind of have to adapt to it um and like we have to sort of learn to live with it and when i was listening like some of the josh harris stuff is interesting because like i think you were sort of getting to the point where like the diagnoses are fairly like he sort of gets the diagnoses quite well and I think that's sort of what holds up the idea that, like, you know, in the future, you will live in public, whether you like it or not. In the future, like, you know, we will have there is this sort of like obsession of like documentation uh, about recording, about sort of like sharing kind of our lives with other people, basically becoming like a product in and of itself. And I think the project kind of is a really, you know, you you sort of like put you sort of like put it very directly in the sense that, you know, you are kind of becoming the product. There is, but there's no. You're right in the sense that there's no kind of question about what it can. This technology actually do stuff that's good for us. Like, can it actually help us? Can it, uh, like, is it sort of healthy for society? It's almost as a given that like the consequences of it are things that we just have to kind of like let like let it happen, and to kind of adapt towards it, which I think actually is sort of silicon mindset right now. Um, you know, I saw, you know, you sort of see it a bit with like the AI boosters who, you know, will, you know, who are sort of like talking, who believe that in some cases that like AI or AI, you know, the GPT technology spells the end of the world, but also this just has to happen and there's no other choice Mm. but to let that happen. And I wondered whether, and so in some ways it kind of feels like it's going back, but I don't think his mentality is that 
I don't think his mentality is like that unique for the time that it was sort of set in. And if you read no. like interviews of with him now, you know, Josh like where like Josh Harris is not a Silicon Valley guy. In fact, like apparently he's lost so much money on technology that he kind of like lives a fairly solitary life playing online poker now. Um but his like I think his opinion is still very much the same in the degree that like, you know, he believes that the technology you know, he believes that like technology will sort of transcend all of us. And so maybe the sort of Musk fanboyism doesn't necessarily come from like him actually kind of believing that Musk will do anything of kind of real human value, but more agreeing with like the Muskian diagnosis, which is the technology will destroy us all and we should let it and don't kind of think too much about who gets to sort of determine who you know, dies from it and who doesn't. Mm. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it, it was so, like, I, I, I found that, that stuff, that aspect of it kind of really quite, really quite compelling because it's no longer the case that Silicon Valley take a kind of, uh, take a kind of optimistic view of no. either tech or the, or the future. They're very much in their doom phase. They're in their mm. they're in their folklore era for sure. They're not like, um, they're not doing they're not they're not really they're not really like they were like they were a decade ago. Uh, so it sort of it sort of closed the loop in quite in quite an interesting way. Yeah, no, I just I think mm. it's I just think it's a really I think it's a really fascinating documentary and really compelling. And I also would and I also really liked the bit at the end where after he loses all of his money which again interesting because the money seems to be like a secondary part of it there's no sense of what would turn into effective altruism i don't think certainly no um it's that oh yeah he made a he made a ton of money out of it because oh, that's that's the goal of you know that's the goal of being and being a business person like that's you know that's what that's what you that's what you're setting out to do he's not doing it out of the goodness of his goodness of his heart Mm. but the idea that okay well i'm rich now and because i'm rich that must mean that i'm smart and because i'm smart that must mean that i am more important than people who are neither rich nor by analogy smart but money only really comes up after he's lost it he makes a huge amount of money and then he loses his fortune and then he goes off to temporarily like raise sheep or something he liked to he kind of does this sort of like kind of homestead stuff but even that this is one of the few points that the the documentarian actually um editorially intervenes like she 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 does the voiceover but but the but the actual kind of intervention is saying this was just as fake and just as much of an artifice as his alleged life lived online, as his alleged mm. public life, even though it was, even though he was being fil- he was being filmed twenty four seven, he was still mugging for the camera. He never forgot that the camera was there. But even out doing the homesteading and being like, oh, now I'm Farmer Josh. I'm leaving all that behind. I'm living a kind of clean and simpler life. I don't care about money. Even that is identified as a performance. And even that is mugging for the camera. Farmer Josh is just as fake as uh, as twi- as precursor Twitch streamer cult Josh, mm. which I think is a really interesting editorial intervention. I sort of wanted to hear more about it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, so so the impression the impression that I got from that was, and this goes back to the clown thing, right? Which is that, like, fundamentally his relationship to technology and his relationship to like being online is one of like the kind of constant requirement of attention. And I think that's like an interesting observation to make at this time, especially when like we're not sort of thinking about like, you know, terms like attention economy don't quite exist yet. Um, And so to sort of go back to that and also recognition that even when he kind of went for this, like very offline, like after like all this damage that like his, kind of need for endless surveillance and attention and kind of like just you know the voyeurism that comes with that like even all the despite all the damage that did he's still kind of like so much of his identity is dependent on it 
to the point where like you know he still kind of needs that type of observation in order to maybe even recognize who he is um i don't know it kind of reminds me a lot of like you know the sort of trad content that we've sort of mm, talked about yeah radically yeah it's stuff much more it's, like yeah. it's much more like that and like i said it's much more like kind of prepper content mm. than it is like silicon valley content but it does but, it, it yeah, does I'm sort of trying to kind of connect it as well with like um with vlogging and even watching kind of watching people whose whose days are very deliberately sort of defrictioned and and kind of blandified and that's and so you and so you sort of you sort of are watching reality TV. It's just allegedly a kind of a real person's life and how they spend their day. I, w- I was watching this um, this reel that came up on my on my Instagram the other day, which was um, a kind of model in- model influencer, um, like describing how she like describing her kind of day like a day in her day in her life and like what she eats and when she exercises and when she mm. journals and. If that is your job to do that, then fine. But like, there's a sort of bit in the middle of the day when she like when she starts she starts cooking this like quite elaborate lunch for herself <laughs> before mm. journaling for half an hour, and I personally don't <laughs> get the I don't get the appeal of kidding yourself that this is actually watching somebody else's life or for that matter if it was a completely kind of unedited unintervened with untampered with picture of somebody else's life i i don't get i don't i don't understand the impulse i i i don't i i don't i never have i understand the impulse for documenting yourself and for making yourself a public figure and that i that i understand even though it's not something that i am particularly keen on myself and i think that the in, the obvious um mental stresses particularly on kind of love island contestants that um that they they don't really foresee exactly what it's going to be like to be public mm. to be public property and to be scrutinized at that sort of level and they're not prepared for it even if they think that that's what they want mm. i don't understand the impulse to watch somebody else's life i i don't think that it's a kind of deliberate invention to kind of to kind of keep people docile and to keep people lonely and to stop them from participating in their communities and participating in the world. I don't think I don't think that because I don't think it's as I don't think it's as deliberate as that, but I think it's certainly been um an unintended side effect. And mm. I just and I I don't I don't I don't get it even at the age of kind of fifteen or whatever watching the big brother contestants sleep i felt this nagging sense of of wasting my life <laughs> watching other people watching other people live theirs which i never did doing things that are if you're thinking kind of pure, sort of pure objective rational terms are probably kind of like just as much of a waste of time like reading like reading a book that you've already read or um mm. going to the park with your friends and like sitting around for for 6 hours and smoking 60 B&H which is what I used to do when I was 15 <laughs> 60 fuck me yeah like honestly like genuinely I was thinking about this the other day I was like um the little the little kind of it wasn't supposed to be an underage club that we used to go to but like it, it, it i mean yeah. it was the men weren't underage the men were adults um of course less yeah. less said and thought about that maybe the better but uh the but we would like we'd like go to like um 
like Camden Lock in the afternoon on a Saturday. Mm. I'd buy three packs of cigarettes, all of which would be gone by the next day. I'd go to this, I'd go to this club, I'd dance for six hours. And like, and I was fine. I have a I have a suggestion, and I don't know who I don't know who you submit the suggestion to. Uh, maybe like the the Olympic Committee. But has it ever has it ever occurred to them to uh, for like Team GB to send to the Olympics just like a group of slightly disaffected teenage girls because like they have they have like the lungs and stamina of like of like gods. I think they must do mm. <laughs> because like now if like if someone is like smoking an actual cigarette near me then like I basically can't breathe properly for the next three days so like something happened to, <laughs> something happened to to me and my general capacity in the intervening years and yeah I was and that was like objectively much more a waste of time. But I didn't feel like I was wasting my life. I felt like I was inhabiting my life. But watching mm. the Big Brother contestants sp- uh, sleep, I felt like however many years there were before me, which at the time I assumed were t- was tons because I was 15 and 15-year-olds think they're going to live forever. Um, mm. I still think I'm going to live forever, but that's but that's more insane than it was than it was when I was a teenager. But it made it feel like I didn't really have enough time to do the things I wanted to do with my life mm. because of the way that it made it made me feel like the time was just like flying by. And I feel that now. I feel that now with reality TV. Apart from like, I don't mind watching like reality TV with like where they're like competing for something that like, that doesn't mm. bother me. That doesn't bother me as much. Like, um, like I like MasterChef a lot. Mm. I've got really involved in MasterChef. I've got really involved in, mm. I've got really involved in celebrity MasterChef. I find that really fascinating because again, once upon a time, celebrities went on reality shows for, uh, mainly for like, to like raise the profile of like charities that they were working with or to like mm. reboot a like reboot a kind of flagging career. But now the reality circuit is its own job, is its own kind of mode of production. Yeah. And if you like if you like balls up like one of the reality shows, then you've ballsed everything up. And I think that is really, yeah. really interesting. And they do this one challenge on Celebrity Mastership, which doesn't indicate anything about whether or not you can cook. It doesn't at all. But what it does do is it exposes the celebrities who are pretending to be kind of nice, normal people. And mm. any of them who are like, who, as it turns out, are like kind of like nightmare loons, um, they get massively exposed by this one particular task where they have to work as, where they have to work as a team and only one of them has the recipe ah. and they have to instruct the other one. Okay. working from their recipe and then they have to make two identical dishes and there was this one comedian i can't remember who it was but she she was obviously wanting to put herself over as like a really kind of like nice normal kind of down to earth kind of like a little bit witty a little bit dry but you know but like she made such a show of herself during this during this task mm. this is this is not relevant to the point i'm making the point i'm making <laughs> is that is that the only time that people can be captured behaving naturalistically is if they don't know that they are being that they are being filmed, if they don't know that they are content. Because even if they didn't mm. call it content in 1993, that's still what it was. Right. But then again, if you don't know that you're be- that you are content, then at what point, at what point do we reach uh, an impasse in terms of what you can expect from the people around you and what correct interpersonal mutual behavior is if the only way that you can be captured in any kind of authentic way is if you have not given your consent for it then what does that actually mean in terms of living in public mm. i think is my final question it's my final observation 
Yeah, no, it's a good, yeah, and, it's, and I feel like that's kind of, looking at it now, I think that's sort of the question that I left with too. Um, and yeah, because like, I, it, it, it kind of goes back to that thing about this documentary gets a lot of stuff right, whether intentionally or not. Um, and I think it's a really interesting observation. It's a really interesting character study almost of a guy who has sort of accepted or like kind of, well, because accepting probably isn't the right word, but he like believes that, okay, this is what the future, the future is going to look like mass surveillance in some kind of some kind. Um, and I'm not sure whether the experiment itself is kind of like a good reflection of what that mass surveillance kind of looks like now. There are certainly like elements of it that are kind of very evident and, you know, obviously like there is kind of, you know, editorializing and the ways in which documentaries are made. Watching the whole, like watching the first half when you're seeing people in this kind of weird commune and just like how anxious that whole, like just watching that is, I think it's kind of partly a good reflection or it's like, it's partly a good um, uh, observation of like the effects of um, surveillance. I think the difference of course, is that this is surveillance in like a very confined space. And it is also mm. one where like a surveillance kind of society is sort of, you know, and really what this is, is like, is it, it's, you know, it's testing like what would a kind of, you know, a can't like a, a surveillance driven commune like look like. And I think that was sort of the intention of it. I think the reality of what, you know, surveillance looks like now is certainly not the one that is reflected in this documentary, but in some ways kind of like is, you know, because there is this idea that like, you know, you are watching other people. There are, you know, we've spoken about this show many times about how, you know, actually, you know, the, the like one of the issues about like public space is also this, um, you know, recognition that in the public space, you are probably being observed. You are probably being kind of like, you know, recorded of some kind or there is definitely the opportunity, the, the, the probability of doing so. Um, I mean, honestly, I don't really know if there's sort of like a point to it other than. I kind of feel like he is right to the degree that, you know, we live kind of, you know, we live public lives, but I wondered whether he understood it in terms of like in the future, not only will you live a public life and be surveilled, but you'll accept it and you'll sort of be, you know, and actually like that's kind of the way society will be like society will have adapted to that kind of idea of being surveilled. And I'm not sure whether that necessarily holds up. But I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe it is. I, 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 I haven't really set my mind on whether I think his observations are salient or not. Mm. Yeah. No. Me neither. Me neither. Um. I am conscious of the time, and I yeah. think that we could be here for a while. Uh. I'm sure, like, we'll revisit the subjects and just like surveillance is a thing that we talk about a lot for like a really weird reason. Um. But which is to say, uh, you can actually watch this video. You can actually watch this film in a lot of places. There is a play, there is uh, a thing of it on YouTube. There is very there are various like archives where you can watch this film for free. Um, I would check it out. I think it's like a really, especially if you like watched it in the past, it's a really interesting rewatch. Mm. Um, so yeah, definitely check. You can basically find that on most search engines. So uh, I'll leave a link just in case you want the ease of that. But like you know. Yeah, it's very it's easy enough to find. Uh, thank you for listening to this free episode of Ten Thousand Posts. We really, uh, we really appreciate it. There is lots of really good bonus content on our Patreon. Check that out: patreon.com forward slash Ten K Post Podcast. Uh, it also helps us to do the show. It helps us to do it without ads, and it helps us to do it without you know our own like surveillance systems uh, that would probably come from advertising. So we really appreciate that as well. One thing we didn't talk about: surveillance in the context of advertising. Maybe sometime in the future. Hmm. Um, I think that's it from me. Do you have anything to plug, Phoebe? Um, yeah, why not subscribe to my Substack? I'm still on deadline, so it's not as um, so it's not as frequent as I was as I would like it to be. But I also did get um, some feedback saying that they actually quite like how um, how infrequent it is because there's because you sign up to stuff and then it's like sort of stuff like every week and it sort of starts to feel like a kind of like mm. a little bit of a chore. So it's sort of almost quite nice if it's a, Oh, um, so I am going to, um, take this one comment to be total vindication of my, of how, yeah. of how bad I've been at, at keeping it up. But <laughs> I'm, 
I'm thinking about stuff. I'm right. I'm writing stuff. It's it'll it'll be it'll be on there. It's just it's it's been a it's been a little bit of a time. I do I do apologize. It's been a little bit of a little bit of a time on the content mill and life in general. But yeah, that is uh, that's God. That's a, that's a long plug, isn't it? Listen to my Seinfeld podcast. That requires nothing of you other than listening. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, definitely go do that. Check out all the other shows like within our network and everything. Uh, this show is produced by Devon. Follow them on Dev- at Devon underscore on Earth. Listen to Kill James Bond if you don't already. That's a very, very good podcast. Also part of the wider network. Um, I think that's it. And so until next time, we will catch you later. Have a good one. Bye. Bye.